Welcome to Unspec, where you'll hear stories that bring you closer to the globe. I'm your host, Ferry Banawa. When the pandemic hit earlier this year, we cut short our first season. We produced eight episodes that told the stories of how people grappled with COVID-19 around the world. Today, we're airing the final episode from our first season. Cities around the globe are becoming more crowded and expensive. Rapid urbanization is bringing in a new generation of workers who drive up prices. They force out marginalized communities who were pioneers of these cities. In American cities, the rich immigrants are pushing out the lower income ones. Journalist Elisa Resnick is an Arizona native who takes us to greater Phoenix. It's one of the fastest growing American cities today. Alisa looks into a little known corner of its past through the eyes of her extended family. If you've ever been to the US, you've probably heard about Phoenix in passing. For one thing, it's one of America's largest and fastest growing cities. More than six million people call the metropolitan area home and it's often in the news. Whether it's far-right groups protesting migrants, scorching summer temperatures that worsen every year, or the changing political landscape that won Joe Biden the presidential election here this year. A few years ago, hundreds of thousands of asylum seekers arriving from the border also ended up in headlines. Part of a migrant caravan that has been headed to the U.S. border for weeks. Trump administration has transformed America's asylum process. Further changes have been made in the wake of the pandemic. And Phoenix has always been at the heart of the national immigration debate. But to me, Phoenix is this. My name is Alicia Valenzuela Patini, and I am from Scottsdale, Arizona. That's my nana, Alicia. She just turned 90 and still lives in this little brick house in South Phoenix, the same one where my mom grew up. There's a chain-link fence and bars on the windows. The yard is filled with potted plants and Guadalupe figurines. And every once in a while, you can see someone taking their horse out for a trot on the sidewalk. But Alicia hasn't always been here. She grew up a few miles away in Scottsdale, a small city to the east of Phoenix proper. These days, it's really wealthy. But back then? Well... To tell the truth, we didn't have anything there in Scottsdale. Now it's so different than it used to be when I was growing up. Alicia's mom, my great-grandmother, came to Scottsdale from just across the border in Sonora, Mexico, over a century ago. The city where she arrived is unrecognizable today. I grew up a few hours north in a little mountain town. Every few months, we'd pile into the car and come down to the desert to visit Alicia. I was based in Jordan for years as a journalist, and before that, I was in Seattle for school. Moving back to Arizona a few years ago felt like my chance to see Phoenix through Alicia's eyes. So this is a story about the people who call this city home. We'll meet lifetime residents and newcomers. 
and a few people who are just passing through. This is a tour of Phoenix, new and old. Everything, you know. And Every, all the gun everybody fights. walking ball with each everybody, other. Everybody yeah. knew what's going on everywhere, pretty much. We even had shootouts, I remember. On a weekday morning in Scottsdale in the summer of 2019, a group of near centennials chatted over pastries in the back room of an old church. Scottsdale is home to about 250,000 people today. And it's posh, really posh. These days, Scottsdale is the most affluent city of its size in Arizona. People visit for a weekend of Old West charm and New World luxury. Think sprawling golf courses and luxury spas, hip art galleries, and five-star restaurants. But it wasn't always like this. Scottsdale was small. It was very small. The only grocery store that we'd go to was Chinese market. They used to call it Los Chinos. That's my aunt, Nelly Ulloa. She was born here in 1929 and has the quiet confidence of a woman who's met a lot of different people. Her hair is dyed jet black and curls just under her ears. Her fingers and toes are painted fire engine red. Her mom, Juana, was born a few hours south of the border in a little city called Imoris. Nellie and seven other siblings grew up in Scottsdale. Back then, here wasn't much more than dirt roads and rows of boxy houses. Before it was a tourist destination, this place was agricultural land in need of agricultural workers. Recruiters from the U.S. came to cities in Mexico like Imoris to find people to farm the land. Juana came here to work as a young woman and started a family. Hers was one of about 30 Mexican families in Scottsdale back then. Nellie and a few other residents started meeting in the back room of the church a few years ago to talk about what it was like back then. Scottsdale was nothing but dirt. We didn't used to have sidewalks, no paved streets, nothing like that. Good, I have good memories of Scottsdale. You can count on neighbors to help you out, and we never thought that Liston was going to try to hurt you anyway whatsoever. No, we all slept outside in summertime, and you didn't think about somebody coming over and try to hurt you when you were asleep. No. Everybody knew everybody. So. Nellie remembers seeing things change around her, but not a lot of people know that history Nellie now. Has been put, written down about certain a writer named Sally Ann Thompson is the one who started organizing these meetings. That's her talking in the background. I spent seven years as a volunteer at the old Adobe Mission. And I realized, talking to people from all over the world, that most people didn't realize the beginnings of Scottsdale, even the locals. By the early 1970s, property had become a lot more desirable. Families were pushed out and investment was pouring in. Nellie and the others remember their parents picking up and moving away when the city planners pressured them. Most were asked to sell property that is worth millions today. They sold it for a little over $10,000 because Scottsdale was ready to grow. And it didn't want to do it with those old boxy houses in the way. A lot of culture left with them. I asked my Nana Alicia and Nellie what that looked like. How much did she get for her house? I don't know. 12,000. 12,000, my Nana says. 
She and Nellie were both married with kids by the time their mom sold the house in Scottsdale. The city offered to buy property at meager prices to get people out fast. Was that pretty normal for the rest of... They say no. No? Uh -uh. Well, we had to sell out because the city wanted to buy it. all that Mexican neighborhood. And that's how a lot of people felt back at the church meeting. Why do you think everybody left, or why did you leave? They, they, stole, they stole a lot of that property. Some, <laughs> we saw some of the receipts on, on, in our records where they, what, they paid $250 for some property in Scottsdale, Bain Street. Yeah. You know, wow. it was worth, what, eighty dollars or $90,000 then, and they, they just stole them. Phoenix has been expanding for decades. 2019 brought almost 67,000 new jobs to the area, the largest increase of any U.S. state. So maybe it shouldn't come as a surprise that the place Nellie and my grandma remember is unrecognizable. It's the kind of change that's happening all over the city. And the things they remember growing up in Scottsdale aren't just gone. It's almost as if they never existed. So what does it look like today? On a busy Saturday morning in Old Town Scottsdale, Nellie and Alicia stopped on the sidewalk in front of the Scottsdale Museum of Contemporary Art. It's a building with huge panes of frosted blue glass. Just across the street is the Scottsdale Public Library, another modern build with big cement blocks and sharp angles. Between the two is the Scottsdale Civic Center. That's where their house used to be. First house I knew, yes. Yeah, we were raised here. We used to be here at Los Olivos, the street right there. Used to be a dish right there. We just go over there and get in the water, and there used to be fields over there. Right here. Uh huh. Scottsdale uh, Hospital. When they first started, there were like barracks. There were what? Barracks. You know for the soldiers and all that. We head around the corner to Main Street, the heart of Old Town. There's a guy in a crisp white polo manning a fleet of motorized scooters. Tourists are lugging paper shopping bags and holding ice cream. The balconies have chipped white paint, and wooden signs swing in the wind. All of this is mostly an illusion, but there is an old wooden building that kind of stands out from the rest. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? This is the grocery store Nellie was talking about earlier, run by the Songs, Scottsdale's first Chinese family. Today, it sells Mexican imports, and the Song family still owns the business. Here's Roseanne Song. My grandfather, bought this building in 1929 and it was a pool hall and it was just just farming and dirt roads and you know the fa the neighborhood and so it's just like a family song says there was no hospital in scottsdale back then so her dad was born in the back of the store everybody bought their groceries here i know they called it the chino store chino store <laughs> Tourists squeeze past as we walk. This is the kind of thing Arizona is famous for. And Scottsdale in particular is this sort of fancy, romanticized version of a Western town. We make our way up a path with green grass and a babbling fountain. Nellie and Alicia head into an old building wedged between the wine shops and galleries. So is this the school right here? Yep. So now it's a museum? Yes. Uh -huh. Hello. You'll be our last people today because we're oh. out of here too. So. To close up. This is the little schoolhouse where Nellie and Alicia went as kids. 
Now it's a museum filled with mock-ups of old kitchens and Western memorabilia. Alicia comes in and tells them this is where she went to school. Museum curator Roberta Martin doesn't seem convinced. You went to school here? Really? Yeah. What year? Oh, my God. She Come was on. born in 1930. So years and years ago. So, so you, went to the, you went to the Coronado School? Right. Martin says her family came to Scottsdale in the 1960s, and she raised her own kids here, too. She's an encyclopedia of facts. She tells us that the city was named after retired U.S. Army chaplain Winfield Scott. In 1895, it was 640 acres. Alicia and Nellie paced around gallery walls of black and white photos of old ranchers and dressed-up families. This is a different side of old Scottsdale than they remember. Nana, do you recognize any of this stuff? No, I don't. But they remember other things. We used to have the fiestas downstairs. Yeah. Yeah, the fiestas downstairs from this house. The dancing and all that, yeah. It was during one of these fiestas that Alicia met my grandpa, Aristodemo. He was in his mid-twenties and had just moved to Phoenix from Parma, Italy. They were married in the old adobe mission down the road. Nellie married her first husband in the Scottsdale courthouse. Alicia's not really the type to share feelings. She sees the changes in Scottsdale as simple matters of fact. They just happened. But when we walk through the old neighborhood, talking about old times, it hits her. What does it feel like to go back after so many years? Well, it brings memories, but it, everything's changed around here. Like this Olivos has changed. It was just a small place. And look at it now. Alicia looks towards a Mexican restaurant she says was around when she was young, another old town relic. It's surrounded and nearly consumed by the new. That's the strange thing. Everything that's left standing here seems covered in a brand new world. It's hard to reconcile with the past. Nellie and Alicia are living timelines of a Scottsdale very few people remember anymore. To me, watching them here feels like seeing the remains of a story you've heard in the background all your life. If it was my story, I think I'd feel so much walking through here. Nostalgia, sadness, anger maybe. A lot of different things. But this isn't my city. It's Nellie's and Alicia's. And they aren't the only ones with stories like this. Think back to the summer of 2019, before COVID-19 sent us into this bizarre new reality, before transforming asylum policies changed how people move through the U.S. even more. Back then, I took Nellie to meet the new migrants crossing the border today. On a gray morning last year, Nellie met me at a church in central Phoenix, miles from the one where she meets her friends in Scottsdale. We stood outside with a group of volunteers waiting for a new arrival. The Trump administration, and now the pandemic, has transformed the way asylum seekers are handled in the U.S. But back then, in 2019, this church was a sort of way station for mostly Central American migrants waiting to reunite with family all over the U.S. Once a week, a big white bus owned by Immigration and Customs Enforcement would arrive full of people who were just getting out of immigration detention centers after crossing the border. 
How does this happen? To put it simply, people get caught traversing the desert borderland, or they present themselves as asylum seekers to U.S. Border Patrol agents at the border. Then, at least before the pandemic, they'd be taken into custody and released to churches like this one. This was Nellie's first time visiting a place like this. She came here because she wanted to see a new generation of immigrants for herself. As we waited for the bus, Pastor Angel Campos introduced himself to Nellie. Campos is a burly man with a salt and pepper beard and a booming laugh. He greeted Nellie with a question that's common here. Where are you from? Campos is used to hearing migration stories in Phoenix. His church is the first stop migrants make after leaving detention. After about 24 hours, they board planes, trains, and buses to stay with family or friends as they await asylum hearings. Campos sees this work as something of a religious calling, but it's also personal. I am a U.S. citizen, but I don't forget that I came as a as an immigrant, that I used to sleep in my car with my father. I was 14 years old. We used to play mariachi music in restaurants, sometimes only for the food. We would play for food. Campos' parents brought the family from Mexico to Arizona when he was a kid. He and his four siblings grew up in a one-bedroom apartment in Tucson before landing in California. He became a naturalized citizen in 2016. He told me he wants to make sure migrants today understand that not long ago, he was in their shoes. A lot of people were. As a matter of fact, I tell them, the only ones that are not immigrants or descendants of immigrants are the Native Americans. Everyone else, our fathers came either from Europe, from Mexico, from, from any other place. So Up to 200 migrants used to come to Campos' church every week. By the time it came to visit in 2019, that number was down to about 20. As the bus arrived that day, an Immigration and Customs Enforcement agent jumped off to unload suitcases. A line of tired parents tugging children headed inside as volunteers lined up to greet them. Nellie was in front, smiling. Welcome! Asylum seekers from Mexico, El Salvador, and Guatemala filed into church pews and piled their belongings in the corner. A blonde family from Russia stuck out in the front row. Campos started with the basics, first in Spanish. Then he paused to let the speaker on his phone play out the Russian translation of his words for the family in the front. We tell them that they are welcome. They are welcome in, in church, in the house of the Lord, and that they are welcome in the United States. Then I tell them that uh, uh, how many of them haven't had a hot meal in the last week or so, and everybody raised their hands, and I, I tell them that today is a day. He finishes with a song on the guitar. Nellie and I watched as the crowd closed their eyes and swayed back and forth. One woman grabbed her husband's hand and they both started crying. After that was the home-cooked meal he promised. Then donated clothes, backpacks, and shoes. Volunteers waited to help make sure that crucial call to family members was made in other states to put together the money for bus fare and plane tickets. That's what I take every day. Okay. Nellie was ready to help out too. She jumped in to pack medicine bags and talk to families. 
As the day wound down, Nellie and I stopped to talk to a woman with coarse hair and brown eyes. People who claim asylum at the border enter into active immigration cases. So I'll use only her first name, Pamela, to protect her privacy. We found her and her daughter sorting through a sparkly pink backpack. She told us she'd spent three months traveling through Mexico after leaving her native Honduras. Eventually, they landed in Agua Prieta at the border to wait for their turn to cross. And they ran into problems. The mafia got a hold of the other friends that were them, and they tried to hold them back. They tried to hold them back? Mm-hmm. And the pastor, the one that got her out. Pamela's eyes filled with tears. Nellie fished for a Kleenex packet from her purse, and I noticed a deep blue bruise in the shape of a crescent below Pamela's left eye. She told us it was from her husband back in Honduras. He didn't want to let them go, so he followed them through part of Mexico. It's another reason they wanted a new life. They were headed for Texas to meet a friend. They stayed there for quite a long time. Pandemic protocols have brought asylum to an almost total halt. But even before that, policies under the Trump administration forced asylum seekers to wait in Mexico. That makes it harder for migrants like Pamela to survive. And even when they do make it to their U.S. destinations, there's still no guarantee their cases will allow them to stay. Nelly was seeing all of this for the first time. I feel sorry for those people. Yeah. Look what they've been through just to get away from violence from where they're from. Something must be very bad for them to do that. People have been coming to Phoenix for years. Agriculture brought my great-grandma, and millions of others have made this place home since then. This is not the same place Nellie's mom made a life in. And it's not the Phoenix she grew up in. She thinks it's a lot harder for people now. Still, she says meeting people like Pamela and hearing their stories reminds her that everyone is looking for the same thing, a better life. She wants families from the older immigrant generation to understand what the new one is going through. She says next time she's back in Scottsdale with the old timers, that's exactly what she'll say. I'm Elisa Resnick for On Spec in Phoenix, Arizona. Welcome back to On Spec. We're talking to journalist Alisa Resnick. We just heard her story on migration and urbanization. She gave us a special tour of one of America's most contradictory cities, Phoenix. Alisa did much of the reporting before the pandemic, but we're also going to talk to her about how things changed after COVID-19 hit Arizona. Alisa, you talk about the layers of migrants who have come and gone and how the city has been shaped by them. We can say that about a lot of American cities. What makes Phoenix different? I think Phoenix is unique because it's such a new city that's growing so quickly. Arizona did not gain statehood until 1912, 
but these days, Greater Phoenix is now expanding more than almost anywhere else in the U.S. Growth like that has been the norm for the last 50 years. So when I first moved to the city, uh, an Uber driver told me about a framed newspaper clipping he had from the 1970s announcing Phoenix's population had reached 500,000. That's really a short amount of time for so many changes. Is there any place that has stayed the same for your family besides the Chinese store? Yeah, actually, I think the area that's changed the least is where my grandma lives now in South Phoenix. She bought a house there back in the 1950s with my grandpa, and driving through there now feels like an entirely different city than Scottsdale or uptown Phoenix. You can hear mariachi music spilling out of neighbors' homes, and it's not at all weird to see guys on horseback trotting on the sidewalks as big trucks zoom by on the street. You know, but even that's at risk of change. High-rise apartments and gated communities are moving into parts of the old neighborhood, and plans to expand the city's public transit system might speed that up even more. You know, I feel like with any city, development is forcing change. And for me, it's been bittersweet coming back and catching up with people who have spent generations here. Nellie mentions that when she grew up there, it was a lot easier That surprised me because labor laws and racism against Latinos was much more open and violent then. How is it harder now? It's really different for migrants now. The Trump administration has made huge changes to the immigration system from top to bottom, and the latest of which narrows the definition of what makes someone able to successfully gain asylum. Before the pandemic, churches like Angel's served as shelters where migrants spent a few hours after being released from detention. But the Remain in Mexico policy really slowed that process down because it meant people applying for asylum have to wait across the border for their hearing. So like we saw with the Honduran migrant Pamela in the story, that can be really dangerous for families and women and just really anybody who's kind of stuck at that borderland zone waiting to to have their cases heard. And by contrast, Nellie's mom came to Arizona when U.S. agriculture needed workers and were actively recruiting them from Mexico. So things were still hard for them, of course. You know, Nellie and her friends at the church in Scottsdale talked a lot about not being able to go into the same community pool as white families growing up or neighborhood segregation in Scottsdale or, you know, being sent to different schools than white children. But I think the attitude about migration was different back then because Arizona was pretty new and workers like Nellie's mom, Juana, were sought out. You know, and later on, after World War II, the U.S. had the Bracero program that allowed Mexican farm workers to come back and forth to work in U.S. farms and guaranteed minimum wage and standardized living conditions. Those just aren't options anymore. You know, and asylum seekers at the border now face this really convoluted application process that has ended with families getting separated or spending months inside a camp in Mexico. I think those differences became really clear to Nellie when she went to help out at Angel's church. This story was originally from 2019. And as you said, the situation is much different. Update us on what's happening with migrants in the U.S. now. Is Arizona different? Well, like I said, a lot has changed about immigration under Trump. The most recent policy change, the one that narrows the definition of what qualifies you for asylum, that goes into effect just days before President-elect Joe Biden takes office this month. And the pandemic has really changed things, too. 
Border Patrol agents are using an emergency health protocol to rapidly expel almost all migrants encountered in the desert borderland, even unaccompanied children and people who present themselves for asylum. Essentially, people are apprehended by Border Patrol, they get their fingerprints taken, and then they're taken back across the border through the nearest port of entry and dropped off in Mexico in a matter of hours. This summer, meanwhile, was Arizona's hottest on record, and it was one of the deadliest for migrants crossing the desert. Much of this state's 400-mile boundary with Mexico is public land and uncut desert wilderness. So this year, more than 200 sets of human remains were found there. That's the most in seven years. And human rights advocates argue this huge death toll is partially due to those pandemic protocols, you know, because people are dropped off in very remote Mexican border towns and left without resources like legal aid. So there's little reason not to try and cross again. That's all to say that between policy changes happening over the last few years and the pandemic, it's really, really hard to get asylum right now. And for people who are trying, there's just not a lot of good options. Thank you for bringing us this story, Elisa, and thank you for listening to On Spec, where we bring you closer to the globe. The story was edited by me and Oscar Duran, produced by Oscar Duran. This was our last story for season zero. We'll be airing our collaborations with other podcasts next. In the meantime, we're producing our most ambitious season on disinformation and how it impacts ordinary lives. Keep listening, keep giving us feedback on iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And we're still publishing our blogs on onspec.news, so don't forget to read. Till next time.